So Jesus is sitting with his disciples the night that he's going to be betrayed. And he tells them this. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. How strange. How could it be to the disciples' advantage for Jesus to go away? How could the presence of the Holy Spirit, this helper, how could his presence be better or more beneficial for the disciples than the presence of Jesus himself? I mean, how many times have I thought it would be easier to be a Christian if Jesus was just here in the flesh? But Jesus says the opposite. And I can imagine that as the disciples heard this, they didn't believe him. They were filled with sorrow to hear that he was going away. And yet, amid their grief and probable disbelief, Jesus had a different message for them. That there was something even better on the horizon. Namely, the Holy Spirit. This is just one example of a theme that I want to explore this morning. Today, I want to argue that the Bible ultimately tells a story of things getting better and better. You might disagree and say, well, according to the Bible, things seem to be getting worse and worse. I agree in some ways. But overall, in the big picture, the Bible tells a story of things getting better and better. The story of human history has improved since the fall of humanity and certainly since the cross. And that's a controversial claim. might sound crazy to you. But before you explain it away, let me explain very clearly what I mean. First, the sinfulness of humanity, while at times more restrained than others, is a constant reality. What I mean is this. People in the 21st century A.D. are just as sinful as people were in the 21st century B.C. Yes, it may be more or less restrained in its effects, but sin before it is an action is a disease. Sin is a chronic, lethal disease that we are born with, and every one of us has got it. It is an incurable wound that will kill us all. Human sinfulness is constant. However, when you read the Bible's narrative, when you watch sin unfolding, particularly when you read the Bible from Genesis chapter 3, when humans first sinned, when you read from there to the cross of Christ, what do you see in those books? Well, this is what you see. When you read the Bible's narrative between Genesis 3 and Jesus' death, you see the effects of sin accumulating and bringing greater deterioration. Are people getting worse and worse and worse as the story goes on? No. We're just as sinful as we've ever been. We've got the disease, but the effects of our sin were building up generation after generation. Let me give you two examples of this between Genesis 3 and the cross of Christ. First, from Genesis. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually, very unrestrained. Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Thus came the flood. That's a pretty sorry state of affairs, wouldn't you say? It's not that man became more sinful. He had the same disease he'd always had, but over time, he restrained it less. We became more comfortable with our sin. We justified it, and the earth was filled with more and more violence. The consequences and effect of sin grew, even though we were just as sinful as ever. So the effects of sin between Genesis 3 and the cross were accumulating. They were causing greater deterioration. That's one example of that in Genesis chapter 6. But a second example is the cross. You ever think about the magnitude of what happened when Jesus was killed? When Jesus was killed on the cross, all humanity, except for the apostle John and a handful of women, all humanity had turned their backs on God to the point that they killed the Son of God. That's worse than what was happening back in Genesis chapter 6. That's worse than what was happening before the flood. So between the fall and the cross, we see sin's impact and consequences causing increasing deterioration in humanity and in the world. So in that sense, the Old Testament does tell a story of things getting worse and worse. But humanity is not the only story, the only character in the Old Testament. In fact, humanity is not the main character in the Old Testament. And, for that matter, humanity is not the villain of the Old Testament. When you read the story, humanity is the ones who need to be saved. We're the suckers who believed a lie and found ourselves trapped. So if you focus on that one character in the story, yeah, of course the story is going to get worse and worse. You're focusing on the character who's trapped in the dungeon. You focus on that character, the story is going to sound worse and worse and worse. But if you allow the camera to pan back to the hero of the whole story, to the hero of the Old Testament, who is the hero? And how is his story being played out? Well, on his side of the story, things are improving. He's making progress in his mission to save humanity. When you read the Bible's narrative between Genesis 3 and Jesus' death, the effects of sin do seem to accumulate and to cause greater deterioration. But in that same period of time, something else is happening. We find God's mission of saving humanity growing, developing, and improving. And there's a paradox here. Or at least two seemingly opposed ideas that are careening toward one another in the Old Testament. The effects of sinfulness are increasing, but... The work of the hero, the work of God, is increasing, growing, improving. And where do the two meet? In the cross. When sinful humanity killed the Son of God, our lowest point, that became the means through which God would save us. So again, the Bible tells a story of things getting better and better. And after the cross... The whole thing is resolving. The war is over. The victory is won. You can listen to my sermon from August 20th to hear that part of the story. But what I want to do today is to trace one narrative thread through the Bible. 
that shows God's mission of saving humanity progressing. I want you to see one theme, one little storyline that gets better and better and better along the way. And this narrative thread begins in Genesis chapter 2. A crucial part of this narrative thread is today's text, 1 Kings chapter 8. And what's fascinating to me about this narrative thread is that it doesn't stop the cross. It extends through the whole Bible. So throughout the Bible, a series of symbols, signs, and types overtaken by better ones demonstrate God's determination to live with humanity again. He is determined to live with humanity again, and we see this in signs, in symbols, and types throughout the Bible. Now, kids, we talked about this some last week, so I'm going to need your help again, okay? So, kids, when God made Adam and Eve, where did he put them? That's right, the garden. Thank you, Isaac. He's ready. Y'all recited your verses up here. Y'all can be courageous. We've heard you talk already. All right, so he put them in the garden, and who lived in the garden with them? The serpent was there. That's true. The animals were there. But more importantly, who was the most important person that lived in the garden? Yes, that's right. God lived in the garden with them. All right, Isaac and JJ, y'all have answered, so we've got to give the other kids an opportunity. All right? But what happened, kids, when Adam and Eve sinned? Could they stay in the garden? No. What happened, Isaac? That's right. But here's the question. Did God still want to live with us? He did. God was determined to live with humanity. He made us to live with him, to know him, to serve him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. And you can see his determination to live with humanity in a series of symbols, signs, and types. God does things throughout the Bible that they're not a full restoration of living with humanity, but it's a step toward that. Or maybe it symbolized what would eventually be. So let me trace a thread for you. So Adam and Eve are thrown out of God's presence because of sin. God no longer lives with humankind. But let's see a symbol, a sign that shows God wasn't okay with that. That God was not content with that separation. Specifically, God enters the story. Despite our sin, despite the chaos, despite the the, the growing deterioration in the Old Testament, God enters the story. He makes himself present. And in the text I want to draw your attention to, he appears to Moses as a burning bush. This sight, this sign terrified Moses. And what did God say to Moses from the fire, even as Moses stood there trembling? He said this, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God, who sent away Adam and Eve from his holy presence, now calls Moses and says, Bring my people here to this mountain, and I'll give you a sign. You'll serve me here on this mountain. So the story progresses. Israel is set free from captivity in Egypt, but even before they get to the mountain, God shows another sign of his desire to be with them from Exodus 13. They moved on from Succoth and encamped at Ethan on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillars of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. God wouldn't leave them. Here's another sign that God desires to be with sinful humanity. God's presence manifests, manifests itself 
in pillars of fire and smoke to lead Israel through the wilderness. How was it that he appeared in the burning bush? As fire, holy fire that terrified Moses. And here he appears again with his people as fire and smoke. What happens when God leads them finally to the mountain from Exodus 19? Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God keeps his promise to Moses. He gives the sign showing that he really does want to be with humanity. He descends with fire and smoke on the mountain, the same presence as the pillars and the burning bush. God's presence is terrifying and holy and dangerous to sinners. But does that change the heart of God? No. He made humanity that we would live with him. So he descends to Sinai to live near his people. But what does God do up there with Moses? He gives Moses his law. And in the law, God tells Moses to make a tent called the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be a holy place where God would live among his people. Notably, when he gives the instructions for how to build the tabernacle, it's arrayed with all these symbols and signs that are reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle is a step toward what had been lost in Eden. Do you see the progression? Slowly but surely, God is more and more among his people in the burning bush, in the pillars, on Sinai, and then in the tabernacle. And as the tabernacle is completed, what happens? God shows up again from Exodus 30. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Do you see how God's plan is moving forward? This is quantitatively and qualitatively better than things were a year before. But here's the funny thing. If you read this same span of chapters... Not focusing on the things that God is decisively doing, but focusing on what humanity is decisively doing. What's the state of Israel during this time? Anybody remember? It's terrible. <laughs> it's horrible. They are sinning. They are faithless. They are doubting. It seems like it is just, they are lost as a goose. But despite the increasing deterioration, despite our increasing faithlessness, God's mission goes on unimpeded. God is making progress. We see his glory showing up here more powerfully than before. Well, eventually Israel gets to the land that God promised them. And they have a lot of difficulty, trouble, faithlessness, and sin along the way. But finally, in the days of Solomon, they have peace. They're no longer a nomadic people. They have their plot of land. Like Adam and Eve, they have their apportioned property where they are going to live with God. So they make a permanent structure to replace the tabernacle called the temple. And I want to emphasize that the temple is not the height of this narrative thread. No more than Solomon is the greatest king of Israel. No, the temple is just one more step of improvement. It's one more sign, symbol, or type as God continues to pursue his desire to live with humanity again. 
And what happens when the temple is complete? Well, let's look again at 1 Kings 8. Didn't think I was ever going to get, to get there, did you? 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of Yahweh, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Does that sound familiar? It's the same fire and smoke from the burning bush, from the pillar of fire and cloud, from the top of Sinai, from the tabernacle. God has entered the building. Why? Because despite sinful humanity, despite our deterioration, God desires to live with humankind. And his plan will not be thwarted, no matter what we do. Now, as I mentioned last week, the temple would eventually be destroyed. What then? Well, Israel rebuilt the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. But did the glorious cloud presence of God return? Did God re-enter the building? No. So did God give up on his plan to live with humankind? Not at all. That question, though, lingered. Though Old Testament prophets began to tell of one to come. They called him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God would live among Israel again. God would live among humanity again, but not in the fire and the smoke. And all this comes to fruition in John chapter 2 when God enters the building. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. What's the sign that God desired to live among his people? It wasn't the second temple that was built in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. No, it was Jesus himself. Do you see the progress? Jesus, living with humanity is way better than the temple. It's way better than the tabernacle, Sinai, the pillar, the bush. The Bible tells a story of things getting better and better. Even as humanity's story seems to worsen, God's mission is improving quantitatively and qualitatively. Though we do see the the fiery nature of God here in this text. But in Jesus, what do we find? We find God made approachable. In Jesus, humanity could touch the face of God without being incinerated. They could embrace him and know him and worship him without trembling for fear because he was God with us. But then as we already saw earlier, Jesus tells his disciples there's something even better. It is to your advantage that I go away because then I will send my spirit. 
And so after the resurrected Jesus ascends to the Father, what happens next as we continue to trace this narrative thread? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What's happening in this story? In the same way that the glorious Spirit of God once filled the tabernacle and the temple, now on the day of Pentecost, the glory cloud, the fiery presence of God fills the church. He fills us as individuals and as a corporate body. The church is now the dwelling place of God. And is that not better? To embrace Jesus and touch Jesus and to know Jesus is one thing. But in his incarnation, Jesus was bound to one place. He was one man. But the Holy Spirit, who fills all God's people, what is he doing? As the gospel spreads, and as people are filled with the Holy Spirit, his presence is spreading and filling the whole earth. God's presence is now available to all people everywhere. You don't have to go to the temple anymore to know God. Because the temple is filling the earth. As the church takes the message of Jesus to all the nations, God is making the entire creation his temple. Today, as the gospel spreads, God is living among humanity more than ever before. Listen, as I read Solomon's words at the end of 1 Kings 8, and see how applicable they are to this whole narrative thread. So look with me at verses 54 through 61. Don't worry, I know we skipped a big chunk. We're coming back to that next week. Verse 54, Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to Yahweh, he arose from before the altar of Yahweh, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be Yahweh, who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses' servant. Yahweh our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him. This is what he's doing through the whole story. He's pursuing his people. That he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and statutes and rules, which only the Spirit can empower us to do. Verse 59. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before Yahweh be near to Yahweh our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Why? That all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is God. There is no other. If only Solomon could have seen the end of the story. If he thought the temple was a blessing. In a fulfillment of God's promises. Just wait. There were so many better things on the way. Namely, the incarnation of the Son of God and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But consider this. The story still isn't over today. The Bible ultimately tells a story of things getting better and better. Well, what could possibly be better than this? The Holy Spirit filling his people and spreading through the whole earth. Well, we see it in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is our destination. This is our hope. The Bible ultimately tells a story of things getting better and better. Mainly, we see God's heart and his unfolding plan to live with humanity again. But here's the question I want to pose, and we're going to address it next week. How should this vision, this hope of God living with us, how should this narrative thread of things getting better and better, how should that impact the way we view ourselves and the way we view the world? How should that impact the way that we live and love and lead among our people and places? Come back next week and we'll see how this beautiful story takes root in our own lives of serving Christ among our people and places. But to conclude the story for today, our conversation, do you realize that God desires to live with you? That in eternity past, he saw you and he loved you and said, I want to take up residence with this one and to make them my child. That it was for love that the Son of God left the glory of heaven. That God might take up residence with you. Christian, how easy it is for us to forget and just live life as though it's, it's, it's me out here, not recognizing that God is with us, that his love and his power rest on us because of the work of Christ. If we could wake up every morning remembering that, that we have something even better than what the disciples had or than what Israel had, that we have God with us through his Holy Spirit, you would think that would radically transform our lives, the way we think, the way we live, the way we love. So this week as you go, go remembering the love of God, the power of the cross, and this reality that God is with you, that he might transform your life and fill your world through you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we sinned and we were separated from you, that you didn't just write us off, that you loved us anyway that you pursued us even to death on a cross. Thank you for the promise of the indwelling spirit that you are with us. Help us, Lord, to live every day in light of this good news, that we are today closer to Eden 
and even something better than Eden than we ever have been before. Lord, help us to live with the hope of one day when you will live in all the world, when you will wipe away our tears, when you will eradicate our sin, and we will have perfect joy and rest in Christ. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.